Okay, before we start the podcast, uh, hang in to the very end because we're going to have a world premiere uh, of a song by Aztec Two-Step. And since our interview is with Marie the K's son, uh, we get to be DJs at the very end and play this song. So hang in there till the end. Migs is going to introduce uh, the show, even the intro thing, and then we'll just go right into it. Okay. The Westport Library and the Quick Center for the Arts, along with iTunes, presents Oh Brother, Not Another Podcast with me, Migs Burroughs. And I'm Trace Burroughs. Today we have Pete Altshuler, uh, who's the son of Murray the K. In our generation, we grew up with Murray the K. And he was like the premier um, DJ of the time and, and also um, pioneered a lot of areas of uh, radio play, uh, FM, um, extended plays of albums, and using multimedia in uh, rock shows. Um, Peter, you can clarify any of that stuff that I said if I'm not accurate. No, that's pretty good. I mean, there were a number of things he did along the way. I mean, when he first did um, It's What's Happening, Baby, the special that ran on CBS, it was essentially music video 15 years before MTV. He was one of the first white DJs who gave preference to black artists when performing music instead of doing the cover versions that were done by the likes of Pat Boone. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Uh, like Miggs and I remember him. He had those incredible shows back in Manhattan, or was it Brooklyn? The RKO Theater was it? Hmm. And uh, yeah, the RKO Fifty Eighth Street was the last live show that he did in New oh, York. Those are the ones. Most I of them were at the Brooklyn Fox in on Flatbush Avenue. Oh, so he would like have for people who don't know, but most a lot of people do. It's like he'd have like twelve incredible acts. He brought over acts from England, like he introduced the Who and the Cream. They never, that was the first time they ever played here, is, is at his show. And then he'd have Ike and Tina Turner, Simon and Garfunkel, and lots of others. The whole show uh, cost $3. <laughs> and you got a movie. I want a movie, that's right. I, I think I went to the one of the uh, 58th Street RKO in 1967, because I was in college and I think I was home then. Um, but I remember I saw the Who, and they did like, I guess five shows, all these groups, right? They just, uh, they did, they, they played all day long. I mean, you could, you couldn't sit there all day long. You could pick one show, but the, the groups were just constantly playing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this, this was one of the things that my father did that not a lot of the other disc jockeys seemed to be interested in doing. He programmed his own shows, so he'd go out to all the clubs after he'd sign off at 11. And he'd just see who was out and about. I mean, that's where he found the young rascals who became the rascals. They were playing at the Gordian Knot in uptown Manhattan. He found the Love and Spoonful down at the Night Owl in the village. Um, you know, it was just one of the things that he did. He had a good ear for what was like music that was going to happen. And especially, I remember listening in my bedroom, the radio, his show, when he started playing a lot of British band music. Like he introduced Hendrix. Uh, I would listen to that just waiting for the next Hendrix song. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and Peter, where were you? What, what, were you aware of uh, 
you know, his celebrity in that sense? Or, you know, were, were you, did you go to those shows? Were you, were you old enough to, to even go to these shows? Absolutely. I was at virtually every show he did. Maybe <laughs> I missed the first one where he co-hosted with Clay Cole at the Brooklyn Paramount. But after that, the shows that he had at the Fox, he had one at the Academy of Music on 14th Street in Manhattan. He had, of course, the final Big Bang show at the RKO 58th Street Theater in 67. I was at every single one of them. Oh, yeah. So, so, so Murray was married many times, according to Wikipedia, six times. He was. Um, are you still, and he, you have two brothers, right? I do. Yeah. Are you still in touch with them? Are they still alive? <laughs> I, yes, we're all still alive. My older, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> my older brother and I keep in touch pretty regularly. My younger brother moved off to Alaska, and we have no idea where he is at the moment. Oh. oh. Interesting. Yeah. It's, I mean, as you said in one of your things that, you know, he... You, you, I think you almost portrayed it like it was an addiction, the nightlife, the, the, the clubs, the, you know, the, the excitement, whatnot. Yeah, all those things. Yeah. <laughs> did, but did that, did that kind of diminish maybe his role as a dad so much, or was he just, uh, he lived with a celebrity? To steal from Mel Brooks, my father had 14,000 children, I would maybe even 14 million children. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they, they tuned in to listen to him every night. Mm -hmm. He also had all of the thousands of performers whose careers he either enhanced or nurtured or guided. There was a story that Tony Orlando told me one time about his first appearance of the Brooklyn Fox, where he finished, he came off, and just as the applause was dying down, my father pushed him back on the stage. He went out, the applause built again, and he came back again. My father took him aside. He said, I don't know what you're doing out there or what you think you're doing, but pick one person in that audience, sing to them, and everybody in the house will think you're singing to them as well. Mm. Then when you are out and taking your bows. When that applause starts to die down, as you're walking off, turn around and come back again, and people will applaud again. And that's the sort of stuff that he did all the time. Uh, Dion Warwick told me a great story about how, in fact, I said, tell me about your relationship with my father. And she led off by saying, if it weren't for the Murray the K, there might not be a Dion Warwick. Mm. And when I asked for explanation, she said she'd had a number of tunes that did really well, but the song that they thought was going to take her over the top, my father wouldn't play. Just wouldn't play. The A&R mm. people called, she called, wouldn't play it. What he played was the B-side which was Walk On By. <laughs> Her greatest hits. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it's such an ear for that. Um, I think anybody who's listening to this who has an ear can tell that you you have a voice, uh, a professional-sounding voice. So you're a performer in your own right as well, yeah. aren't you? Yeah. I, I've done a bunch of audiobooks, a number of which have won awards. He said self-congratulatory. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> well, who else is going to say it? Go for it. <laughs> um, 
and a lot of the stuff that I do is as a Brit, because I can do virtually any British accent that you can think of. And well, you answered my next question, because I listened to some of your, t your videos, and I was saying, oh, I didn't know you must have had a British mother or something. Uh, nope. I have no idea where it came from. Oh. I wish I could, you know, give credit to somebody, but I don't know. And your last name, how come it's not Murray? Kaufman. Uh, Kaufman, sorry. <laughs> Murray. <laughs> Why isn't it K? Okay. Why is it Let's start with the fact that he was married six times. Mm. That none of his children basically grew up in his household. My eldest brother was raised by my grandparents. I went off with my mother. She remarried. Oh. Her husband adopted me, so I took his last name. Oh. And... Keith was raised by his mother, Claire, and stepfather, Marty. So it was, uh, as I, his, you know, his family was more his business than anything else. Did you have a, how many, so how many step-siblings are there totally? Uh, there are no step-siblings, they're all half. Oh, half, that's right. So I have one and a half siblings. Oh, okay. Yeah. So did you get to meet, like, with all these celebrities and shows, you get to meet any of these people? Well, if they were on the bill at the Brooklyn Fox, and I went back to the green room, I saw them all. Mm. One of the most remarkable experiences was when Tom Jones was warming up in the green room with the band, even with the band, with no amplification, he was louder than they were. <laughs> See, that was one powerful set of pipes on that man. Yeah, Migs, Migs has a story. He barged his way into the, into the hoot dressing room at one of your he, that shows. Yeah, well, my, Trace was a drummer then, and uh, and I so I went in to see the show because I, I, I had been to England, so I'd seen the Who in person in England in a club in 1965 or six. Uh -huh. so it was when they realized they're coming to America, so I went to that show. And then I figured I was going to grab, a, so Keith Moon's throwing drumsticks all over the place in the middle. So after the show was over, I figured I'm just going to run up and grab a drumstick and bring it home for Trace, you know. So I do. I, everyone's sort of leaving the theater and I look around and I get up on the stage, sneak up on the stage, and I grab a drumstick. And just as I'm doing that, I, I see the Who going up this iron spiral staircase up to a dressing room. And I follow them and I follow them right into their dressing room. And I mean, I was petrified. I didn't have a camera. I had nothing. And the, the, the five of us sat there in total silence for maybe 45 minutes. <laughs> I, I didn't know what to say. I could have had a great interview. If I had a camera, I could have gotten a great picture. They all sat there, again, about how, how many shows they played every day. They were totally exhausted. I mean, they weren't taking, I didn't see them take any drugs, but they all had their heads in their hands. It was just a weirdest scene. I thought there'd be this lively banter. You know, they were just totally I didn't ask you, who are you and kick you out? <laughs> Nobody asked me who I was. They must have assumed I was some PR person or somebody, you know, radio station person. But anyway. It's, um, those shows were exhausting. Mm. I mean, they were basically vaudeville that had been given a little bit of an update. Mm -hmm. And instead of having, you know, a range of different acts, they were all musicians. And they would play from morning till night. There was a point at which 
Jan and Dean were on the bill and they said, screw this, I'm not hanging around in the theater while the movie's going. They went down to a pool hall down the street and the stage manager, Jay Fontana, who was the size of King Kong, <laughs> went to get them and bring them back <laughs> and made it really clear that when you're doing a Murray the K show, you're there for the duration. Um, you don't go anywhere. You want something, we'll bring it into you. You don't go out. Nobody leaves the theater. <laughs> well, and, and your father was in vaudeville, right? Or was he brought up in vaudeville? He had a, his parents, your grandparents were in vaudeville? My grandmother played piano in vaudeville. My aunt uh, was a performer in bit parts in the movies, and she did Broadway. Um, so he grew up around this. Uh, he was um, up in the Borscht Belt for a long time. He worked as a tumbler before he went into the army. Uh, when he was in the army, he was in that group that put together shows for the troops. Um, so he's been around this for forever. I mean, he claimed that he did bit parts in movies as a kid, but I've never found any evidence mm. of that whatsoever. <laughs> right. So, like I mentioned in, when, when I was contacting you, you know, we we got all excited. I don't know how old, what year that was. Like it was right before the Beatles' last tour. You know, that there's this. We, we grew up basically in a middle class home on a middle class street, but in the woods right behind our house, you could see from our bedroom, there was this huge Hollywood style stucco mansion. And I guess your dad rented it one summer. Yeah. And then the word got out that the Beatles were coming to visit him since he, he was the fifth Beatle and hung around with him a lot. And and there were I think makes then you go out there with your motorcycle and there were like people camping and they're sleeping. Yeah. Well well I, what I remember was that we were <laughs> Our parents took us to Lake George every summer, you know, when my father got a break, he worked at home as an artist. And when we came back, to my recollection, the neighborhood was buzzing. The Beatles were here. The Beatles were here. Murray the K was renting the mansion, which I don't think we knew when we left. So we, I guess we missed it or we never saw them. We never saw your father. But that was the rumor. And later, I mean, several years ago, I mean, much later, because it was several years ago, there was a house tour in our town. And I and that that house was on the tour. And I went in there and it was a very young, wealthy couple, like a hedge fund guy and his wife that, that uh, lived there. And I asked them about it. And they said, oh, yeah, we everyone who comes here tells us that that happened. So it could have been a rumor about a rumor about a rumor. But but our parents went over there after um, Murray left and um, talked with the owners because they were like sort of friendly with them. And they, you know, verified it and said the Beatles came in an ambulance or a hearse to, you know, because they'd want to be seen. Oh, yeah. Mania was so crazy back then. And so that's how it goes. That's a, but you never very, visited. You don't remember you weren't there at the time. I mean, you didn't come oh. spend the summer in Westport. Or, yeah. No. I mean, my, my youngest brother, Keith, may have gone up there during that summer. Mm -hmm. But none of us had a close relationship with Jackie the K, wife number five, who he was married <laughs> uh, And my older brother was off in Germany in the army at that point. Mm. So he certainly wasn't there. If the Beatles went up there, hey, great. They probably yeah, had a nice time, swam in the pool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Country house, everybody in England is a country uh, It would have been a big, 
deal for us, you know, because it was as close to celebrity that we'd ever gotten. Although our friends of ours, a, a musician friend of ours, Barry Tashin, uh, was the opening, Barry and the Remains were the opening act for the Beatles on their uh, last tour at Shea Stadium. But that's as close as the brush with celebrity as we ever got. Huh. And I remember, I guess your dad had the dancers then, the Murray the Kid dancers, is that what they were called? Oh, we always had Murray the Kid dancers. <laughs> <laughs> and they were when, when the, first the first group was actually the Ronettes. Oh. And oh. They, they were the first Murray the Kid dancers oh. at, I guess it was one of the Fox shows. Yeah. And then as time went on and he was doing television specials, he had a whole new bunch of Murray the K dancers uh, that they expanded in number. I think they got to be as many as seven, maybe. Mm. Um, and I hear from one or two of them every now and again. So he rented Murray or got permission from, there's a little league field down the road from where we grew up. And he, he used that as a rehearsal place. And I remember when I heard about that, I wanted to, you know, see what was going on. And so I would go down there and just saw him rehearsing, you know, the choreography. You know? Oh, really? Oh, I didn't. I never, I was away, I guess. Hmm. Yeah. So, so I'm just curious about his, if it's not too personal, like, is, was he just an incurable romantic? So in terms of being married six times, I mean, usually once or twice is enough for any man, but... Uh... <laughs> was he just a romantic or he just it was it was it he needed a woman on his arm you know to to complete the picture or you know it was family. the 40s 50s and 60s mm. people didn't shack up with women in those days they mm. married them that married was what women. they did um his birthday is valentine's day which may have had something <laughs> no. to do with it yeah. but that's a know, good maybe that's Beautiful just mind. strictly coincidental. Yeah. But, you know, he, his first wife um, died in childbirth. Mm. Um, my mother was his second wife. Then he was married to a woman for all of six months. I have no idea whatever happened to her. Mm. Then he was married to Keith's mother. Then uh, when that marriage fell, to, fell apart, he married Jackie Hayes, Jackie the K. And then they separated. He was working down in Washington. He then met Jackie Zeman, who was the sixth and final wife. And, you know, it's just, they married them in those days. Yeah. I, I don't, I've been married for over 50 years, so I don't understand this, but. Hey. <laughs> yeah, but some people do that. Mickey Rooney and who's the, Ava Gardner, which one was married? Well, the women, you know, Jaja Gavor is married. 700 times. <laughs> John, John Wanamaker, I think, was married six times. And I don't remember for sure, but I think it was Wanamaker who said, um, the next time he's just going to find a woman he doesn't like and give her a house. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that's right. funny. <laughs> so we should, if you want to, uh, mention your own websites. I mean, you're, you're a, what, you have a, a blog called Plod, right? Plodcasts. Is that the name of the blog, or that's the subject of one of your blogs? Was podcast? It's, it's one of it's one of my blog posts. Yeah. yeah. In which you state you hate podcasts, so <laughs> here you are in this hateful medium. What, <laughs> what? Well, for for the most part, my objections are for business to business podcasts. Oh. Um, that the I worked in journalism for a lot of years. I worked for ABC News on Twenty Twenty. 
I worked at WNBC in New York on their new Center 4 program. I did shows for the Great American Dream Machine on PBS. And my idea is that you go out, you interview people, you come back, you edit it into something that's cohesive, brief, to the point, and done. Mm. And yet most of the podcasts that I listen to, they turn on the microphone, they leave it on for 30, 50, 60 minutes, and then they say, thank you for listening, and they turn it off. <laughs> they don't do any editing. They don't do any narrative review. They don't summarize anything. They, it's just lazy journalism to me. Yeah. So God better edit this into something coherent. <laughs> <laughs> So another thing I remember about uh, Murray the K is the way he talked. He's such a swinger, you know, like a cool daddy. A soiree, you know. Yeah, the the swinging soiree, and um, uh, I remember that being very like. Did he invent? Was it submarine race watchers? Was that his, or was that another? Yes, DJ? that was his. Yes, there were submarine race watchers. There was the swinging soiree. There was Mia Sari, the the jive talking thing. Which was, oh yeah, yeah. Hoffman, Hawking, oh, that's right. That's that language almost. Yeah, yeah. I, now I well, that's it was you know pig Latin for the acne aged. <laughs> yeah, but every DJ in that era had a personality, right. and you listened to them for that personality. Um, Bruce Morrow, who actually preceded my father at WINS after Alan Freed left. Cousin Bruce. And then wound up on WABC. Cousin Bruce. <laughs> yeah, Bruce to me was like the Prince of Great Neck. <laughs> um, but my father's audience was as diverse, as integrated as anything that anyone in the civil rights movement would have considered laudatory. Those people all got together in that theater. Nobody saw race. There was nothing. Mm except having that music in common. Right. And everybody just got along great. Right. Yeah, and the lineups. Yeah, it just showed, you know, yeah, girl groups, guy groups, bands, British, American. Uh, it was such a mix, but like you said, vaudeville, I never thought of that comparison, but it was just kind of constant variety. I remember when the Who, so every band, I think, played three songs. So the Who were known for wrecking their equipment. So instead of waiting like the big finale after a two-hour concert, they had to do it on the third song. And I remember, yeah. I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed their act. But uh, I thought that was very funny that, you know, they had to compact it, you know, for the show so people could get. Yeah, get the Who their, experience. You could get the Who experience. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, nobody was doing big concerts in those days. I mean, the Beatles had done it. And yeah. then I think the Rolling Stones had had a big stadium concert. But for the most part, it was totally new. I mean, to put together a show the way my father did at the Brooklyn Fox today would cost millions mm. of dollars. Yeah, oh, yeah. The tickets would be like, you know, $200 or whatever. Yeah. yeah. But back then, rock and roll was not an established commodity. It was still sneered at by mainstream radio and the record company. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it was, oh, yeah, we have to do it because the kids are buying it, so we'll give them this. But what happened was that the disc jockeys who made rock and roll a success had their roles 
taken over. That's my phone. Ignore oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> um, had their roles taken over by the executives at the record companies who realized, hey, there's money to be made here. We're not going to give it away to them disc jockeys. We're going to make it for ourselves. And so you got playlists. You got top 40. The disc jockeys were told what to play. They couldn't pick their own music anymore. And that's what, for most of them, made the difference. That was part of their personality. You tuned into Murray the K. You knew you were going to get the record review board. You were going to get mm -hmm. pick hits of the week. You were going to get lasts from the past. And every now and again, he'd you know, pick up a song that he'd say, I'm betting the house on this, here it is, and he'd play it. Yeah, and he was usually right. That did right. not happen with the Beatles. Yeah. I mean, he put, I think she loves you on the record review board. It came in third out of five songs. He went on vacation to Miami, and he got a call from the station saying, hey, you got to come back. The Beatles are here. He said, great, call an exterminator. <laughs> yeah. Because at that point, the name didn't mean anything. Right, yeah. That's funny. What, what are your own, I'm curious, your own musical tastes, proclivities? Do, do you go to concerts yourself now? Or are you a musician yourself? Do you, what kind of music do you listen to? Or Let me put it this way. I got a free ticket to the Shea Stadium concert with the Beatles. Mm. And I left before they started. Yeah, really? Because I couldn't hear a thing. Oh, yeah. And there was no way, even in the seat that I had, that I was going to be able to hear anything. And in the meantime, my ears were being just blown out. So yeah. I don't go to big concerts. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I'll listen to the music in the privacy of my own home. Yeah. And I'll listen to everything, you know, from Maybelline to Mozart. Mm. If I can dance to it, that's even better. Yeah. So my musical tastes are definitely eclectic. And the older I get, the more I listen to classical music. Yeah. So Murray started out as a talk show host, right? Didn't he have like a couple of talk shows? He was the producer of three different um, late night shows. One with Sheila Graham, one with mm. um, Lorraine Day who was married to Leo DeRocher, who was the manager of the Giants. And I can't quite remember whether he did the Lorraine Day show first, and that's how he got to do PR for Willie Mays and Mickey Mantle, mm. or he was doing PR for them, and that's how he met Lorraine and wound up producing her show. He also did a show with Ava Gabor, mm. but he wasn't the on-Mike talent. They were. He would put together the list of people that they'd be talking to, but essentially it was their show. He did do a show with um, his fourth wife, Claire, on WMCA, which was part of a very popular trend in those days to have a husband and wife team. Mm -hmm. uh, there, I can't remember their name at the moment, but there was one couple that was massively successful in New York. There was another based in Chicago, and they were all daytime shows. It was like you know, husband and wife talking about just about anything. And so Murray did a show with Claire, and it was on during the day, during the weekends, I think, primarily. I think it was a 
I don't know. I can't remember that much. Right. So you produce, you've produced a, a few films, right? Like I've, Charlie I've, yeah, I've produced for HBO. I've produced for ABC. I've produced for PBS. Um, never done anything Hollywood-ish. I was a co-producer on a syndicated series that was done in LA that was done for Universal. Um, but after that, I sort of got away from doing television and did more and more advertising and marketing, wound up running the in-house agency for a firm. And basically for the past 20 years, I've been uh, working on my own, sometimes with titles, sometimes without them. And to me, working remotely is nothing new. Yeah, yeah, for most of us, yeah. No, I've had clients in Kenya. I've had clients hmm. in Florida, in Boston, uh, Australia. You know, so makes no difference to me. That's true. And yeah, on your website, you say words uh, are your refuge. So you obviously you appreciate words. You use words in your work. But um, have have you written a personal? Do you, do you write like a book, fiction, stories, anything beside the, the marketing piece? I've, actu I've actually written a book about my father and myself. Yeah. But I fictionalized everything because some of the people are still alive. <laughs> yeah. And they might not want their stories told. Yeah. Um, Jackie the K just died this past December at the age of 91. Wow. Um, so essentially the only people left are my siblings and Jackie Zeman, who still appears from time to time on General Hospital, and which is where she spent decades playing one of the nurses on the show. We could always change his name to Murray the J, you know, just so nobody, <laughs> so nobody will know who you're talking about. You know? I wouldn't. Though, <laughs> so, I mean, he reached a level of um, fame that he even made it into a Superman comic book. Right, I saw that. Yeah, you know, where they had Clark the K. They referred to Henry Kissinger as Henry the K. So he had some influence, if not always a lasting one. Yeah, well, Fifth Beatles, not bad, um, yeah. you know, to have that. Uh, yeah, I, I, let me just say something about the <laughs> Go ahead, please. We want to. Everybody excoriates him for saying that he decided he was the fifth Beatle. He didn't. When the Beatles came to the States, their first concert was in Washington, D.C., before they did the Sullivan Show. And my father went down with them on the train, and they were walking from one car to another. My father was the fifth person in line, and some security person tried to stop him, mm -hmm. saying, no, you can't do this. And George Harrison, who was the fourth Beatle in the row, <laughs> turned around and said, no, it's all right. He's the fifth Beatle. Wow. And, and so that stuck. In fact, when they then went to Miami, Murray and George shared a room together. I have no idea why, hmm. but everybody apparently was sharing rooms. And yeah. I guess Brian Epstein was with one Beatle and two of them were together and then... George and my father were in a room together. So. 
It's a, an amazing career. Of I mean, also, remember that when the Beatles came to the United States, Murray the K was the top-rated rock DJ in the most important music market in the world. Mm -hmm. He didn't go after the Beatles. Brian Epstein came to him mm -hmm. because he knew that if he could get the Beatles airplay on Murray the K swing and soiree, they'd reach a bigger audience than they'd reach with any other DJ in town. This isn't to say that they didn't also cater to WABC or WMCA, sure. but you know, he went to Murray and from there, everybody else. Right. Yeah. Well, he was the star maker. I seem to remember him playing like, I want to hold your hand eight times in a row or something or all day for a whole hour. Like he would just play it, you know, it's, it's just innovating. Well, if he liked something, it got a lot of airplay. Yeah, as it should. Well, the only thing I can say, the only song that he ever played that he was extremely conscientious about was Splish Splash. Hmm. Because the idea was my grandmother's, the basic opening eight bars of music was hers. Murray and Bobby wrote the lyrics together. Did they? So, it could have been seen as self-dealing if he played that song too much. Hmm. So splash, I'm taking a bath. Do, yeah. Do, 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 do. yeah. I mean, thank God for Sesame Street, the song still plays. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Peter. Well, it's PeterAltshuler.com, MurrayTheK.com. If you want more, dig, take a uh, deeper dive into all this. But I really appreciate your yeah, time. You're welcome. My pleasure. All right. Now, here it is, the world premiere of the song Breathe by Aztec Two-Step 2.0.
gotta do the right thing Gotta stand up for justice Mr. Floyd's Dr. King Silence means violence So get on Killer Mike's boat Organize, strategize, mobilize both Gotta organize 